If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 32. Ezekiel chapter 32. As we've seen over the past few weeks, of the 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel, eight of them deal with nations other than Israel. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt, seven nations in all. And this is significant, particularly if you remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that you formerly, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's us, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That describes these seven nations. And yet in these chapters, we have oracles, we have laments, and we have a real sense that God cares for all human beings, those made in his image, and that he is grieved deeply by the fact that they have gone their own way. The passage that stands out in my mind of these eight chapters is found in chapter 28. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you were the model of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. It's a wonderful thing to say to someone, yeah, you were perfect when you were in Eden. And God says this of a king who says, I am a God. Well, obviously the king has gone off the tracks and yet God has a real sense of his preciousness. Now the underlying truth in these chapters is that there is only one God. There isn't a God for Israel and then a God for Ammon and for Moab. There's one God, one God overall. And as a consequence, he has something to say about the history and the destinies of all nations. He is not simply a tribal God, that he's the Jewish God, the God of the Hebrews. He is the Lord God Almighty, the God of all creation. We've been looking, we looked last week at Egypt because of the eight chapters, half of them, four of them deal with Egypt. And as we saw, usually we think of Egypt in a very negative way. You know, the Israelites were slaves there and God had to deliver them in the Exodus. But in fact, there, there are positive aspects to their relationship. Abraham went there when there was a famine. Uh, Jacob took his whole family down to Egypt. The Pharaoh said, come down here and live during a famine. And the, the Lord Jesus uh, when Herod wanted to kill him, uh, Joseph takes Mary and the baby, the infant Jesus, down to Egypt for safety. So it's not all negative. Okay. Um, there are two things I want to say, though, as we get started. First of all, of the seven oracles or seven speeches, if you wish, in these four chapters, six of them are dated and, and one is not. They're not given chronologically, and I think that's worth noting. Okay. And secondly, um, the dates are all tied to Jerusalem. They're all around the time that, first of all, Israel is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar, and then ultimately Jerusalem will fall. Okay. 
Thus far, we have seen that Pharaoh, like the king of Tyre, is guilty of self-deification. Pharaoh said, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. Well, that's, that's just ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And yet this is the nature of human beings that we imagine that we, in fact, are in control. But it's more than self-deification. Ultimately, it becomes hostility toward God. And so Pharaoh is described as a dragon or as a monster. Uh, I think Leviathan, who is, who is mentioned in the book of Job and Psalms, this is a huge sea creature that is the epitome of hostility to God. We also saw that Israel depended on Egypt for military support, but it's like, it's like leaning on a cane made of reeds. They can't hold your weight. They will, they will splinter and cut you deeply. This is what had happened to Israel. Judgment would come, and for 40 years the Egyptians would be scattered. But unlike the other six nations, we have a promise that God would bring them back to Egypt. That in itself, I think, is quite remarkable. Nebuchadnezzar would be the instrument of their judgment, and Egypt, as well as her allies, would be destroyed. This, on the face of it, seems impossible. Egypt is a world power. And in, the, in chapter 31, we have this poem of a great cedar. And it's speaking metaphorically of Assyria, just this huge tree. And you know, it says that the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. No tree in the garden of God could match its beauty. Again, going back to Eden, back to the beginning. Some commentators think that this is a mistake, that somehow Assyria is, is, you know, they messed some of the letters up and it actually isn't Assyria, but it is. But see, at this point, Assyria is gone. There is no Assyria. Seventy years before, one of the first great world powers is gone. It's destroyed. And God says to Pharaoh, you know what happened to that great cedar in Lebanon, Assyria? It's going to happen to you. You might imagine that it won't, but in fact it will. One more thing, and then we'll get into chapter 32. Seven times in these proclamations, we hear these words, then they will know that I am the Lord. God's dealings with human beings have a purpose, and it is that they will come to know that he is the Lord. We might think him to be cruel, to be capricious, to be mean, You know, the God of the Old Testament is seen as this angry deity. But in fact, there is a purpose. When he deals with people, even severely, it is that they would come to know that he is the Lord. Today we come to the final chapter of the four dealing with Egypt, chapter 32. Um, Let's begin reading in verse number one. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me. This is shortly after the fall of Jerusalem. The second lament that will come up will be two weeks later. We'll see that in a minute. Verse number two. Son of man, take up a lament concerning Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you are like a lion among the nations. You are like a monster in the seas, thrashing about in your streams, churning the waters with your feet, muddying the streams. Just say, parenthetically, the NIV is not particularly helpful here. Because what is being said is, you think you are like a lion, but you in fact are like a monster in the seas, like Leviathan. 
Oh. If you've ever seen a picture of the Sphinx, what is the Sphinx? It is the body of a lion and the head of a human being. So this is part of the Egyptian tradition. They think that they are a lion. It is usually an image that is connected with Israel, but I mean, it doesn't, it can be shared, a shared image. But the point is being made here, thinking that they are great, in fact, allows for the metaphors that follow how God, in fact, will judge Egypt. By the way, if you've ever watched Animal Planet or National Geographic and you see alligators or crocodiles in a river, particularly when they get prey and they start spinning around and the water gets all muddy, that's the picture that emerges here, that this great monster, this crocodile, leviathan, whatever it is, a dragon, is muddying the waters, thinking that it is great. So verse number three, this is what the sovereign Lord says. With a great throng of people, I will cast my net over you and they will haul you up in my net. I will throw you on the land and hurl you on the open field. I will let all the birds of the air settle on you and all the beasts of the earth gorge themselves on you. I will spread your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your remains. I will drench the land with your flowing blood all the way to the mountains and the ravines will be filled with your flesh. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining stars, the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. By the way, the fact that God would rather refer to Egypt as a sea creature allows for the images that follow that the sea creature will be taken up by nets and then thrown on the land, and then it will be devoured by animals, by birds, and such. The language of judgment here, by the way, should sound vaguely familiar. There are echoes of two of the ten plagues that fell on Egypt. The first is that the uh, Nile turned to blood, and so you have this whole thing about uh, drench the land with your flowing blood. I mean, blood everywhere. But the second one, and this tends to throw people, when it talks about that the sun will be dark, I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. This, I think, is a connection with one of the plagues in which it was dark for three days and three nights. So the sun did not shine, or they didn't see its light, or the moon, or the stars. As much as to say, you know what? It happened before, and it will happen again. It can happen again. I think that that's, that's the whole problem with Egypt. They imagine this cannot possibly happen. I don't mean to be melodramatic or to create fear, but I mean, do we not think the same thing about our, na- our nation, our country, that the United States can't possibly fail? That's, the, that's what Egypt was thinking, and God's like, judgment is coming. Beginning in verse number nine, the language is no longer metaphorical or uh, poetic, but in fact is quite, quite uh, literal, if you is, that you have a description of the dismay that other nations, wait a minute, if Egypt falls, if Egypt can fall, this great nation, what, what will happen to us, us smaller countries? Verse number nine, I will trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring about your destruction among the nations, among lands you have not known. I will cause many peoples to be appalled at you and their kings will shudder with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. On the day of your downfall, each one of them, or each of them will tremble 
every moment for his life. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, the sword of the king of Babylon will come against you. I will cause your hordes to fall by the swords of mighty men, the most ruthless of all nations. They will shatter the pride of Egypt and all her hordes will be overthrown. I will destroy all her cattle from beside abundant waters, no longer to be stirred by the foot of man or muddied by the hooves of cattle. Then I will let her water settle and make her streams flow like oil, declares the sovereign Lord. When I make Egypt desolate and strip the land of everything in it, when I strike down all who live there, then they will know that I am the Lord. As I said, this is, what, this is the whole purpose, is that people would come to know that God, in fact, is the Lord. Verse 16, this is the lament they will chant for her. What we saw previously, the poetic part, this is what people are going to chant. The daughters of the nation will chant it for Egypt and all her hordes, they will chant it, declares the sovereign Lord. Um, the professional wailing women, and many traditions have this, where you pay women to weep at funerals, um, and sometimes they sing, sometimes they chant. This is what they're going to chant when Egypt falls. So two weeks later, verse number 17, in the twelfth year on the fifteenth day of the month, okay, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 18, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and consign to the earth below, both her and the daughters of mighty nations with those who go down to the pit. What we find in the verses that follow is, if you wish, a tour of the afterlife. Egypt is going down into the grave. To Sheol. Okay? And we don't know exactly what that looks like. But here uh, a tour is being given to the Egyptians. Oh, by the way, people, you're going down. Okay? You are going to be destroyed. And you're going to go to Sheol. Um, which in verse number 19 are like, well, do you think you're better than others? You're more favored than others? You think this can't happen to you? Um, Something worth noting in verse number 19, go down and be laid among the uncircumcised. It's worth noting, um, Egyptians practice circumcision. Okay? In fact, a number of peoples in the ancient world did, uh, not just the Jews. It was, I think, a symbol of pride for the Egyptians, but now they're going to be with those who are uncircumcised with other nations. And so the tour is given. It begins with Assyria. Verse number 22, Assyria is there with her whole army. Egypt, welcome, I don't want to say hell, but welcome to the grave. Oh, and by the way, let's start with Assyria and all her mighty armies. They're here already. They've been here before you, those who were slain by the sword. Um, and then you have others. You have Elam, Meshech, Tubal, there with all their hordes around their graves. All of them are uncircumcised, killed by the sword. Verse number 32, although I had him spread terror in the land of the living, Pharaoh and all his hordes will be laid among the uncircumcised with those killed by the sword, declares the sovereign Lord. You know what happened to those other countries, those other nations, those other armies that were destroyed? It's going to happen to you, Egypt. It is going to happen to you. Having spent eight chapters dealing with Gentile nations, 
Ezekiel returns to why he was a prophet. He is to speak to Israel. The last time we saw Ezekiel speaking of something, not the Gentiles, these foreign nations, it was on the death of his wife. When God tells him, um, you know, later today, and remember, he doesn't call her his wife. He calls her the delight of your eyes, indicating a, a deep affection, deep intimacy. And God says, she's going to die today. Later on today, she's going to die. And then he says, don't mourn. Seems almost like a, a cruel thing to say. Keep wearing your turban. Keep your sandals on your feet. Don't cover the lower part of your face. And do not eat the bread of mourning. In other words, all the things you do when someone passes, don't do that. Okay, Ezekiel, the delight of your eyes, this woman who is so precious to you, I'm going to take her. That's the language used. God is going to take her. And I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to grieve for her. I don't want you to, for people to look at you and go, oh, he's mourning. He doesn't have a turban on. He's, uh, his feet are bare. He's covered the lower part of his face. No, none of that. And the reason for this is that others would see it and say, oh, this must mean something. And what it means is Jerusalem is about to fall. And I don't want you to mourn for Jerusalem, referred to as the delight of your eyes, as Ezekiel is not grieving for his wife. Disaster is coming to Jerusalem. That's what the whole book has been about thus far. Here in chapter 3, it happens. It happens. Um, but before we get to that, sort of a review, a reminder of the place of responsibility. In verses 1 through 6, we have the first groupings of responsibility, and that is the watchman. You know, we have technology now to keep watch over our possessions or our houses, but back then they would have in a city, in a town, a watchman, someone who would keep vigil at night to make sure no trouble would come. Look, if you would, chapter 33, verse number 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, When I bring a sword against a land and the people of the land, choose one of their men and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows a trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone who hears a trumpet but does not take the warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own, hand, his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. This is something we heard early, early on in chapter 3 of Ezekiel, in which God says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So a watchman has a duty. He has a trumpet. He has an alarm. Maybe circumstances ring a bell to tell people there's trouble. Trouble is coming. Now, if you warn people and they don't listen, well, that's on them. 
But if you see trouble and you don't warn them and something happens, then that is on the watchman, that the guilt is found on him. I will hold the watchman accountable. Verses 7, 8, and 9, we find out what we were told in chapter 3. Ezekiel is the watchman. Look at verse 7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. So again, the principle is, you know, now it's made personal. You know, earlier we were talking about a watchman. Okay, Ezekiel, you are that guy. You are the watchman, okay? And if you fail to warn, then you're responsible. On the other hand, if you warn, but the wicked refuses to listen, then that's on him. But you will have saved yourself. Now in verses 10 through 16, I think in the same vein, there's the call to repent. If you're wicked, you need to change, okay? Look at verse number 10. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Let me just stop here. If there is one verse in the Old Testament that you would highlight or underline or mark or whatever, it should be verse number 11. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Verse 12. Therefore, son of man, say to your countrymen, the righteousness of the righteous man will not save him when he disobeys, and the wickedness of the wicked man will not cause him to fall when he turns from it. The righteous man, if he sins, will not be allowed to live because of his former righteousness. If I tell the righteous man that he will surely live, but, he, but then he trusts in his righteousness and does evil, none of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. He will die for the evil he has done. And if I say to the wicked man, you will surely die, but he then turns away from his sin and does what is right, just and right, if he gives back what he took and pledged for a loan, returns what he has stolen, follows the decrees that give life and does no evil, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the sins he has committed will be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He will surely live. This is very, very similar to what we heard in chapter 18, in which you have two individuals. And this is where it gets a bit tricky. But you have a man who is considered righteous, who for much of his life, if most of his life, has done the right thing. Then over here you have person B, and this is a wicked man. This is a person who for most of his life has lived wickedly. He has done the things he should not do. Now, all things being equal, you think, okay, they're on a path. These are the paths that are going to follow them all the way to death. But God says, no, actually, this righteous man, the guy who's always done the right thing, if he decides, hey, I'm a righteous guy, but cut me some slack. I can do some things I shouldn't do. He shouldn't imagine, well, you know, all the good things I did before, that'll sort of cover over any wickedness I'm going to do now. Uh, No, no. On the other hand, you have this wicked man, and he's like, I'm on the wrong path. Um, 
There's nothing that can fix that. And the answer is no, that's not right. If in fact he repents, if he turns away, let's say that the man lives to be a hundred years and for 90 years of his life, for 95 years of his life, he has lived wickedly. But if he repents, he should not imagine, well, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that can erase that record of mine. And, and God says, no. God doesn't want to kill people. He doesn't want to judge them. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, he wants them to turn from their ways. So you have two people. And I heard someone speaking this morning on the prodigal son. The two sons. The older son is, if you wish, the righteous person. The younger son is the wicked one. But it is the younger son who repents. And we find that the older son has always had this resentment. It is the younger son who is reconciled to his father. Well, some people would say that's not fair. Let's say you have a guy who lived to be 100 years old and for 90, 95 years, he did good things. And then at the end, he sort of went off track and started doing things he shouldn't do. God shouldn't hold him accountable for that. Look, if you would, at verse 17. Yet your countrymen say, the way of the Lord is not just. God's not fair. But it is their way that is not just. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, he will die for it. And if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live by doing so. Yet, O house of Israel, you say, the way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to his own ways. It seems to be a common complaint, I think, even today. People who reject the gospel, they ultimately they see God as not being fair. It's just not fair. Why would, in fact, God send good people to hell? It doesn't seem right. And then you have someone like the thief on the cross in the very last minutes of his life repents, and then Jesus says, okay, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That doesn't seem fair. God, in fact, is just. We are the ones who are not right. We are the ones who are not fair. Then verse number 21 the news comes. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month of the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. After all the warnings, after all the prophecies regarding the fall of Jerusalem, it finally happens. Verse 22, now the evening before the man arrived, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer silent. You may remember early on when, when Ezekiel was commissioned to be a prophet, it's one of the things that's not particularly clear to us, but for a period of time during his being a prophet, he was mute. God made him mute. He couldn't speak. It's like, really? That's like being a singer and your voice being taken away. He's supposed to prophesy, but God makes him mute. And at different points in the book of Ezekiel, God sort of unmutes him, and Ezekiel is able to speak. So verse 23, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the people living in these ruins, or in those ruins in the land of Israel, are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land. 
but we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possessions. This is a really strange passage. I encourage you to read it uh, either today or sometime during this week. Um, Okay, this is the story. Jerusalem has fallen. This is the third time. The first time it was taken, Daniel and the Hebrew children, they're taken into exile. The second time it falls, Ezekiel, along with King Jehoiakim, is taken into exile. This is the third one. And Jeremiah tells us that, in fact, uh, let's see, Jeremiah 52, the last chapter of Jeremiah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. So the vast majority of Jews have been taken into exile in Babylon, but some people are left behind. It's these people who are speaking. And basically, this is what they say. You know what? God gave the whole land to Abraham. He's only one guy. But now it belongs to us. See, because everyone who's been taken into exile, they no longer have property rights. We can take any piece of land that we want. This is our country. This is our place now. This belongs to us. It is strange and somewhat amazing that they bring Abraham into the conversation. The man, the promise was made to at the beginning that the land would be his and his descendants. But now they say, we are the ones who will own everything. It's all ours. If you look at verse number 25, since you eat meat with the blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, that is violence. You do detestable things and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? How foolish. They break God's laws. That's why everybody else was taken into exile because of their sin. And now they're doing the same thing everyone taken away has done. And they think, we're going to be great. We're going to be rich. You know what? Last year we were poor. We were of the poorest. But now everybody's gone. It's all ours. And God says, really? You do the things for which I judged Jerusalem and Judah, and you're doing the same things, and you think, I don't care? We're going to be rich. And God says, no, actually, you're going to be judged. The Lord would make the land desolate. Plague would come. So these poor people who think, now we are rich, uh, actually, no, they will lose their lives as well. The last part that I want to look at today is verses 30 to 33. The people and the prophet. This is a fascinating passage. As for you, son of man, that's Ezekiel, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. 
in Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah is given a vision where God shows him two baskets of figs. And one of the baskets um, had very good figs. They had ripened. They are ready to eat. Okay. The other basket had bad figs. You could not eat them. Okay. They're just terrible. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, you know what the good figs? They went into exile. They went to Babylon. It's the bad ones that were left behind, Zedekiah and all his people. So on the face of it, it would seem that the people who are in exile with Ezekiel, they're the good guys. They're the good figs. And the ones who were left behind and now Jerusalem has fallen, they're going to be taken into exile. They were the bad guys. They're the bad figs. Okay. So there must have been some sense of self-satisfaction among the exiles. We're the good figs. But God says to Ezekiel, you know what? These people talk among themselves. It's like, hey, let's go to church meeting. They didn't have churches, to synagogue. Let's go and let's hear what Ezekiel has to say. This is going to be good. They listen, but they don't put into practice what Ezekiel preaches. What they say doesn't match what they do. And then the hard part, and this must have been hard for Ezekiel to hear, is verse 32. Indeed to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words but do not put them into practice. To them Ezekiel is entertainment. As a prophet he is a virtuoso. He's a celebrity. He's a rock star. He sings love songs. And in fact, the ESV has, sings lustful songs. So this this popular entertainment, Ezekiel, that's all you are to them. They come and they listen, but they don't do what you say. Boy, he can really play the guitar well or the harp or whatever. And he has a beautiful voice. What are the lyrics? Well, I don't don't know. I don't care about the words because if you heard the words you'd have to put them into practice the Lord tells Ezekiel in the last verse when all this comes true and it surely will then they will know that a prophet has been among them when what comes true we're not told we're not told it's part of the mystery of this but something is coming And it doesn't sound good, okay? It doesn't bode well. Something is coming. Then they will know. It wasn't just entertainment. It's not just a celebrity, a rock star singing lustful songs. Someone who was speaking the truth. These two chapters may seem very, very different, but I am struck by what we see in this. I would say that what we see in these two chapters is the whole of the gospel. First of all, the tendency of human beings to self-deify, to say, I am a God. I made this. I'm in charge. Okay. Secondly, the reality of judgment. You can say whatever you want to say about yourself. Judgment is coming. One day we will all stand before God. But this judgment is tinged by God's grief. 
God loves those who are made in his image. He loves his creation. He does not delight in like, yes, wait till these guys show up and I, I really stick it to them. He grieves. He grieves. And then we see that human beings are responsible. You can't say, well, it's my parents' fault. It's my genetic code that I was born with. It's the environment I was raised in. It's all my circumstances. You are responsible for yourself. So religion is now seen as a viable option. If I, if I, want, if I want things to go well, let's, let's do the religious thing. But then oftentimes religion becomes little more than entertainment. And as we've seen before, Christianity is not a religion. It is the truth. And people who embrace it as a religion, in fact, are embracing entertainment. Because they hear what it has to say, but they don't do what the gospel says. So then I'm taken back to where I started in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Hopeless. You are on the road that, Mark, that is Mark saying, no hope. But the next verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We who are made in the image of God, who want to replace God, who one day will face judgment because we are responsible for our choices, there is another way. There was a time in the lives of most human beings when they were without God. It doesn't have to stay that way. One can get off the path of no hope to that of hope in Jesus Christ. But I think the first step is stepping away from saying, I'm in control. I make the choices. The reality is we are called to humble ourselves before God and know that he loves us and he is gracious. And he proved that by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in Jesus, we who were just out in the sticks, separated from God, now have been brought close. Now we are the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, by your grace, you've brought us here today to worship you, to sing together, to pray together, hear your word read and preached, to speak to one another. Our hearts are not pure, but by your grace we have not come here to be entertained, but to hear your truth. And by your grace, when we leave this place today, to put it into practice. We freely confess that we are human. And as human beings, our default position is usually that we want to exalt ourselves. We want to imagine that we are in control of our lives. We do not want to humble ourselves and give you control, which you already have. 
oftentimes you are seen in the Old Testament as mean and cruel and angry. But you take no delight in the death of the wicked. You're a God of all grace and all love. May we come to see that in a new and deeper way. And particularly as we share the good news with others. That yes, there is judgment, but there is another way. That in Jesus Christ, we who used to be hostile, we who used to be enemies, are now your people. We thank you for your word. May your Holy Spirit work in our lives as we think through these things. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Keep us through this week. I think of Nia and her birthday coming up this Saturday. Thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.